Hello, my name is Philip Camella, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Collapse of Materialism, Philip Camella. On this show, I'm going to do something a little different, and that is I'm going to talk about, surprise, some of my own ideas, which I t discuss on virtually every show, but on this show I'm going to put together a couple things and talk about why I'm doing what I'm doing. And to begin with, I'm going to talk about uh, a article that I'm just about done with. It's called Why Mathematics is Unreasonably Effective at Explaining the Physical World. And I'm also going to talk about another uh, piece called The More Probable Worldview. And what this is all about, really, for me, is coming up with a broader way to understand the world. And in scientific terms, this is called a new scientific theory. I like to think that a theory of everything eventually will actually explain everything, which means all human experience, and not just the particles and forces of modern science. What I try to do on this show is to give credibility to some ideas that are often considered to be far out, such as mediumship, near-death experiences, parapsychology, or even talking to aliens. At the end of the day, every one of these concepts, every one of these phenomena, should be supported by evidence, just like scientific theories. On this note, I might add that there's very few people who actually question this, the theories of modern science. The ones that are doing it are people like creationists who question Darwinian evolution. And if you actually read the books by creationists, they make a lot of good points. And we are so conditioned, however to view creationism and those who question modern science as outliers that we don't pay attention to the arguments. Let me give you an example from the other direction. There's something called the Big Bang Theory. This theory is accepted virtually without question by everybody. It's accepted as scientific orthodoxy by every modern physicist. It's taught in the universities. It appears on TV, the cosmos. It appears in virtually every issue of Scientific American. It is accepted as unalterable truth. This theory, however, when you actually look at it, it just doesn't make any sense. Am I speaking crazy talk now? Well, frankly, I would be willing to debate anybody 
who thinks the Big Bang is true, and at the end of the debate, we'll see who's more crazy than the other. And let me explain my position, and if somebody disagrees with me, please feel free to email me at philipcamella at gmail.com. That's P-H-I-L-I-P-C-O-M-E-L-L-A at gmail.com, and I would be happy to have you on the show and we could talk about it. So let me tell you why I think the Big Bang is really a theory whose end days have to come soon. To begin with, what is the Big Bang? Well, the Big Bang is an explosion of matter, energy, and space. And then, as like children, we ask the question, where did all this stuff come from? And we look at modern science and we say, please tell us um, where all this stuff came from that exploded in the Big Bang. And the answer they give is, frankly, we don't know. We assume that matter existed and energy existed from all time. When you look at the, the evidence for this, what they're really saying is that it appears as if, from the cosmic microwave background radiation, that the universe is expanding, that there's this microwave background radiation that is the aftermath of a gigantic explosion so if we rewind the film so if we rewind the film we come to this point of infinite density the singularity at the beginning of all time into this one point all the the universe all the billions upon billions of galaxies and stars are condensed into this tiny little point. So then we might ask, well that's nice, you just condense the entire universe into a fine point, a point by the way that no one's ever experienced, saw, measured, or barely imagined because it's an awfully amazing point that it's got the entire universe into this little pinhead. And so we say, okay, where did this come from? Where did the pinhead come from? Well, Stephen Hawking in his book the uh, Brief History of Time says, well, that can't be answered because the laws of physics break down at the singularity. Well, that's great. So that means the question's unanswered. And then, then, then there's Leon Letterman, who wrote the book The God Particle and gave the Higgs boson, by the way, the title, The God Particle. He says in his book, the very first page, pick it up, The God Particle, he says, when someone starts talking about the very beginning they're just making it up. One of the most truthful perspectives on the beginning of it all is, is by George Gamow, who is actually the originator of the Big Bang, and he wrote a book called The Creation of the Universe back in the 50s or 60s. And in this book, he talks about the creation of the universe, but he was criticized for really discussing creation. Um, a, you know, something out of nothing. And he came back and he, in the second edition, he said, hey, I really didn't mean to answer the big question about how something could come from nothing. I was really talking about how the forces of nature sort of fashion the world when you already have something. So that doesn't answer the question either. Then there's Alan Guth, the originator of the inflationary theory, which we're going to get to in a second here. In 
Alan Guth says in his book, The Inflationary Big Bang, after making a lot of grandiose pronouncements about how the inflationary theory solves all these problems, he says, well, inflation doesn't really bring us back to the ultimate origin, but if we had one speck of matter, then it could create the universe. The most truthful perspective on this question really is found in a book called Physics for the Rest of Us. And in this book, the author says that essentially, I think the author is Roger Jones, he says that modern physics takes matter, space, and time as given. They're already there, and then the scientific method works. So my point here is that the Big Bang is a theory. It's a theory about how a speck of matter evolved over time, but it doesn't explain where that speck came from. And this is a fundamental flaw because it's like saying someone's going to build you a gold castle in the sky, but they have no gold and no way of keeping it up in the sky. And before we start talking about this kind of creation, we need a mechanism to create something from nothing. And without that, we're simply engaging in speculation. So from the beginning, from the start of it all, our original questions as children, gee, where did all this stuff come from, is true. It's a good question. We don't know the answer to that question. But the problems are just beginning when we start talking about how something came from nothing. The other problem, very, very serious, is that we have to understand that in a modern scientific worldview, we are supposed to separate the physical world, which is the singularity, all the matter that exploded in the Big Bang, we separate it from ourself. What this really means is that we can't let, science cannot allow any mind, God, or spirit to become infused into the matter, because that sounds too spiritual. We can't have intelligence guide the outbreak, the explosion of the Big Bang. Okay? So, but that, of course, leads to a big problem because the question is how is mere random movement going to generate a world of mathematical order? Now at this point a lot of objectors will say well there's natural selection or there's a natural law. They use the word nature or natural to explain why matter starts following the laws of nature. Well What's weird about this is that where is this nature coming from? What is the natural law that is guiding the movement of these tiny particles? There is a system of thought in philosophy that's called pantheism that is associated with the Jewish philosopher Benedict Spinoza, who believe that nature is God. And ironically, 
Guess who is one of the followers of Spinoza? Uh, Albert Einstein. He was a follower of Spinoza. He thought that the laws of nature are God. And that's sort of what most modern scientists believe. They really believe that nature is God, that the laws of nature are God. And what this ultimately comes to is that scientists are pantheists who believe that nature is God. Now, here's a quote from the book called Dreams of Reason by Henry Pagels. He writes, We can safely drop the traditional idea of a demiurge, or God, for there's no scientific evidence for a creator of the natural world. No evidence for a will or purpose in nature that goes beyond the known laws of nature. So, nothing goes beyond the, no, the known laws of nature, meaning that, to them, the laws of nature are God, our spirit. That's the intelligence. Now, remember what I said that the book Roger, by Roger Jones, Physics for the Rest of Us, is very candid on this topic, where he says that, that science, that physicists takes matter, space, and time as given. Well, science takes the laws of nature as given as well. And so the problem, though, is how did this matter that exploded in the Big Bang become infused with the laws of nature? And I challenge anybody to find any book that actually answers that question. How did the matter in the Big Bang become infused with the laws of nature? Through what mechanism? And what's happening here is that something close to mysticism is occurring because we're seeing little particles becoming infused with these internal guidance systems. Because we have to remember that the laws of nature are very, very special. These are not just regular operating pronouncements or directions or rules, but these things are supposed to be true across all time and space. The law of gravity, we understand, is true across time and space. They've all, it's always been true. The law of electrodynamics, or electromagnetism, and the speed of light, and the weight of an electron, and the mass of a proton, all these things are valid throughout time and space, the strong nuclear force and the weak nuclear force. Well, how did these randomly generated particles become infused with the laws of nature? This is probably the biggest question that science faces, and it's one they've been very good at avoiding. And here's something that is important because it turns out that a philosopher, in fact two philosophers in the 19th and 18th century actually confronted this question and answered it. David Hume, the 18th century Scottish philosopher, said that he couldn't find no reason, sense impression, or anything else that would prove that a law in nature exists. 
how do we know that the sun will rise tomorrow? Is it logically certain that it's going to rise tomorrow? How do we know that when you drop an egg, it's going to break or that bread feeds people? David Hume said that there's nothing out in the world that, it, that makes us logically certain. And this is something that may, may take some thought, but it really makes a lot of sense because we really don't have any proof in front of us, out in the world, that things will always be the same. How do we know that the speed of light will not change tomorrow or the force of gravity will not change? What is holding all this together? And David Hume, after a very deep and insightful analysis, came to the conclusion that it's our need and belief. We believe these things will be true and therefore they are. Pretty simple. Now, Immanuel Kant, widely considered the greatest philosopher of all time, if not, one, well, if at least one of the greatest, he was inspired by Hume's decision, by, by Hume's conclusion. And let me make myself clear here that when I talk about Hume and Kant, these two folks are basically ignored by modern thinkers, modern writers, scientists. Many of them will cite to Kant and Hume for various things because they are so well respected. But almost every scientist I've ever read does not appreciate the depth of Hume's analysis or Kant's analysis. Kant said, after reading Hume, Kant was, was wakened from his dogmatic slumbers. That's the famous quote. And he said, well, there's got to be something more than needs and beliefs that holds the world together. Kant came to the conclusion that it's the structure of the mind that molds the physical world. In other words, the mind imposes order upon the physical world, which is exactly opposite to the Big Bang when you think about it. Because the Big Bang is a some, somehow organized explosion that imposes itself upon us. We came from the Big Bang. So, but Kant said that that's not possible. The natural law is a function of the human mind. And that's a radical statement in today's age. It's why I am considered to be radical. But it happens to be, I think, true. And it's also more valid than the materialistic scientific perspective. So let me move on with the Big Bang. And there's some really interesting statistics that Robert, that Roger Penrose came up with in his book, The Emperor's New Mind, in case people are wondering, oh, well, you know, the Big Bang uh, could have created a universe. What, what he said was that, that the odds, here's a good one, the odds against the universe appearing that we see today, instead of a black hole, is 10 to the 10th to the 60th power. So it's not just 10 with 60 zeros after, it's, it's 10 with 10 to the 60th zeros on it, an almost unimaginably large number. In other words, the explosion of the Big Bang should have led to nothing, nothingness. It should have been scattered to the four winds. Somehow, we have mathematical order being generated from the Big Bang. Roger Penrose also has another really cool um, statistic where he talks about the law of 
second the second law of thermodynamics which is the law of the engine where heat dissipates where things move to a greater state of disorder over time and so to lead to the order state we have now from an explosion is incredibly unlikely when you think about it because even though it there's a chance that disorder will lead to order the odds are insurmountable that if you start with disorder you're going to lead to, you're going to get more disorder or even if you start with order you're going to get more disorder the best example is hot water cools the example i use in my book the collapse of materialism is if you leave a bunch of children in toys or us things are going to become more disordered that's another example not exactly the perfect example but it's it's a little bit more fun than some of these other ones but Roger Penrose said that the odds against our universe being created from the Big Bang per the sec against the second law of thermodynamics is 10 to the 10th to the 123rd power. Again, it's not 10 with 123 zeros after it. It's 10 with 10 to the 123 zeros after it. Of course, it's an estimate, but you get the idea. It's wildly improbable. And in fact, I would call these the odds of the impossible. It's just not going to happen. So science, materialism, needs some organizing mechanism to create the world. And, and you know what? They know, scientists know, that there has to be an ordering mechanism. But they've been, to me, not admitting that fact. And here's two examples that are on almost front page news that we hear about all the time that it turns out we live in something called the flat a flat universe and there's this is called the flatness problem and the flatness problem is sort of simple in some ways and that is under Einstein's theory of general relativity uh, a certain amount of mass bends space warp space one way or the other and if you have exactly the right amount of mass, then you'll have a flat universe. In other words, it won't bend one way or the other. Sort of like a pencil balanced on the point. Perfectly flat, perfectly balanced. And it's much more likely to be going one way or the other. And then if you think about the early universe, that if it was slightly off of being flat, it would gradually tip one way or the other, right? Because the forces of gravity are going to make it go away from perfect flatness and ironically when it, it turns out that when scientists have measured the mass in the universe it's exactly flat yes we live in a flat universe which um, one uh, university physicist uh, Alex Philip Pekinko has basically said that flat universe is five atoms per cubic meter and guess how many atoms we have in our universe? Five atoms per cubic meter, exactly the number of atoms per cubic meter we need to have a flat universe. It isn't that strange. We're not talking about just some kind of wild, jumbled together collection of dust that led to a ordered universe. We're, leading, we're talking about a universe that produced something, I'm sorry, an explosion, that led to a perfectly flat 
universe. Now the odds against this, the universe in order to be flat today would have to have been 10 to the 15th power close to flat within one second and 10 to the 49th power close to flat within 10 to the minus 35th second. What is this saying? This, this is saying that because over time any any imprecision in flatness is going to magnify over time and so it has to be very very close to perfect flatness in the beginning in order to stay flat. It's sort of like walking down a street and trying to balance a plate on top of a stick. You may try to do that where you walk and you know that as soon as that plate starts wobbling you're dead because it gets the wobble gets worse and worse. It's exactly the same thing. So why is the universe flat today? That is this that's a strange one. Why 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 do we live in a does it sound like the universe is um, designed or is finely tuned? And there's something else here before I tell you what science's solution is. This it's something called the smoothness problem or the horizon problem. And that is, when scientists look at the cosmic microwave background radiation, this, this relic of heat across the heavens that's supposed to explain the Big Bang, or supposed to be a fossil of the Big Bang, it turns out that the microwave background radiation is the same across all regions of the universe to 1 in 100,000. So how is it possible for this explosion to have led to such uniformity across the heavens? You add on the fact that the universe looks the same in all directions, generally, and from all perspectives. Why do we live in such a balanced universe? It really suggests something is going on. And then, in the 70s, and continuing since then, Alan Guth came up with this idea called the inflationary universe, which has gone through various changes over time. But the inflationary universe essentially says that, well, we can get rid of the flatness in the horizon and smoothness problems if we imagine that the universe was tightly condensed in the beginning and shared information, and then it ballooned something like 10 to the 50 times in 10 to the minus 35 seconds and then just one on its graceful uh, expansion with the normal Big Bang Theory. In other words, this is really a computer model, you think about it, of how creation might have started or could have started in order to solve the flatness and horizon problems. Now let me be very specific on why everybody should care about this and that is the flatness and smoothness problems show that there is a design. It shows fine-tuning. It shows that something is up. It is impossible for random creation given everything we've already talked about which is something from nothing, the odds that we would be living in a black hole, that we're going against the grain of the second law of thermodynamics, smoothness, flatness problems, without there being some fine-tuning, some intelligence, maybe even a god behind the scenes.
But scientists in their textbooks, in the universities, don't want anything to do with intelligence that's, that's other than their own brains. They want nothing to do with spirit, nothing to do with any kind of God, whether it's inside of us, outside of us, or somewhere in between. And therefore, they pledge allegiance to the inflationary Big Bang. And they trumpet the achievement of the inflationary Big Bang as being the solution to the flatness and horizon problems. Now, does this make any sense that we put our chips on a mathematical theory simply devise to do away with strong evidence of fine-tuning. Well, not only does the inflationary Big Bang sound preposterous, because how did it just come to pass that the universe inflated by this incredible amount, rate, 10 to the 50 times and 10 to the minus 35 seconds or something like that just to just to do away with the flatness and horizon problems just to give us this this balanced universe boy that's that's pretty lucky in our part well paul steinhardt a princeton professor who was one of the originators of the big bang who i had on my show a couple years ago he wrote an article in scientific american basically saying that the inflationary Big Bang was more improbable than the original Big Bang. And according to Roger Penrose, the same guy who came up with these other odds, that the odds that inflation would have led to our current universe are something like 10 to the Google power. That's 10 with 100 zeros after it. More unlikely than the original Big Bang. Why? Well, because it takes a special kind of inflation to work in a way just to eliminate the flatness horizon problem and to lead to the to the universe we have today and that folks is why we're living in this quandary right now where everybody seems to want to believe in the big bang because it's the thing to do but it just makes no sense when you look under the covers and so what I try to do on this show is I try to look under the covers between interviews, between uh, guests and with, with the guests, try to question some of these things. And don't take my word for it. Read some of the books that I've mentioned. My own book, The Collapse of Materialism, is really, in many ways, an expose of some of these outlandish theories of modern science and why is this so bad and why do I care so much Well, I care so much because to me the world comes from us not at us and if it comes from us then it's our responsibility to make it better science I believe my, this is material science not not the ideal form of science or the scientific method I'm talking about materialism as abdicated responsibility for the world to some dark and impersonal forces out in the void. They've imagined that this world could have been created apart from God because they don't want to have any God disrupt their equations. And therefore, they've just forfeited responsibility. It's a strong statement, but when you think about it, there's a lot of truth to it because we don't care 
as much about our world as we would if we knew it was it was it was us it was part of us many of us treat it as a foreign object look at people for example who litter if you if 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 you were living at home and and, and the and the world was your home would you throw garbage on your floor I don't know I, I I think some people may and some people still do but if, if it's your home you treat it with more respect and so what I'm saying is that not only does it make good sense to treat the world as our home but it's also scientifically prove proven or it's scientifically provable that the world is part of us it's a reflection of who we are and when we let materialism separate ourselves from the world, we abdicate responsibility for it. And that is not a good thing. This is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I am doing some my, my own speechifying here for a change of pace. Anybody who wants to challenge anything I'm saying or debate me on the show or discuss this on or offline, just email me at philipcamella at gmail.com. My website is www.thecollapseofmaterialism.com where I've got some uh, articles and blogs and other things that are advancing this, this thinking. Now I want to move on to another point that I think is really important here, which is that the more I think about it, the more... I've come to the conclusion that this is really not a logical, a logical issue or an issue of rationality. This is a social issue. Most of us believe in science such as Darwinianism, which is a whole other topic, or the Big Bang, because other people do, and other people who, who are smarter than we are, or think are smarter than we are, and it's taught in the schools, and everyone thinks it's true, and therefore you are irrational if you think it's not true. Well, isn't that, that sounds like going along with the Joneses or being a lemming or being closed-minded to me. Go follow the Big Bang, it's fine, but at least think through the options. Probabilities rule our lives. We choose college majors that offer more job opportunities. We pick mates that better ensure long-term success. We choose investments that are more likely to pay off in the long run. We bet on horses with better records. Choose the route to work with a lower chance of congestion. Pick the car with a better repair record. On and on and on. When we think about it, probabilities rule our lives. But when it comes to the big questions, who we are, does God exist? What's the ultimate makeup of the universe? Does God have a purpose? We tend to let others do the research and place our bets on what authority figures are telling us. We don't think these through ourselves. When we come to the big questions, we let other people make the, the decisions for us because we believe they have more credibility despite the improbability of the things they're telling us. Now there's a probability test that I've worked on and it's, I'm gonna make, I'm gonna give you the simple version right now and just to show you what I'm talking about. And this is all about probabilities because I think I'm a logical person and I've come to my opinions through logic, not 
not through a um, kundalini or religious experience or some epiphany. I really come through it through logic, and that is necessary for me. So let me let me give you a quick comparison here of why I think that the materialistic worldview is so wildly improbable. I'm just going to pick three three facts here. Okay, and you could put down a piece of paper yourself what the odds are for this one. Okay, so first of all, what are the odds that something could come from nothing in materialism? Okay, now the odds that I put down are 1 in 10 to the 100 power. Okay, I just made that up. You could pick out whatever you want. I think the odds are actually zero because I don't think it could happen. In other words, I don't think mind-independent matter could come from nothing. But let's just pick to 1 to 10 to the 100th power. And for support, I've already talked about how um, Leon Letterman says when someone's talking about how everything began, they're making it up, and laws of physics break down. And I just don't think it's very probable. And maybe you, maybe you might think it's more probable, but... It just seems to me to be incredibly improbable. Okay, so we have, how does something come from nothing? Very improbable. How about the laws of nature? What are the odds that these particles would decide to come together and create an, or, an organized universe? Well, I've mentioned Robert Penro, Roger Penrose's odds, so I'll use that odds. This is the odds that Roger Penrose, in his book, The Emperor's New Mind, gives for the odds that our universe would be created instead of a black hole, and those are 10 to the 10 to the 60th power. Okay, so we have to have something come from nothing, then we have to have those particles form into an organized universe, and this is actually a kind way to look at it, because just because all of these particles might come together through some kind of amazing string of events like a monkey typing Beethoven's Fifth Symphony randomly, that monkey's got to keep typing the same thing again and again and again. The speed of light's got to be constant. Electrons got to weigh the same. For it to continue repeating, I think we're, we are in the odds of the impossible. But I'm, I'm using 10 to the 10 to the 60th power as being the odds against particles forming into an organized universe. You may have your own odds. Obviously, 10 to the 10 to the 60th power is a wild guess, but I'm using it because Roger Penrose is a very smart guy. Use something for a similar fact. Okay, so so far we have 10 to the 100th power and 10 to the 10 to the 60th power. And here's, here's one of my favorites, which is the odds against life arising by chance. There's a book uh, by Paul Davies where he quotes this guy, uh, the, a biologist, uh, Mr. Dr. Mingowski, who said the odds against particles forming life by swirling around by chance are 10 to the 100 million power. 10 to 1 to the 100 million power. So we just could put those three facts together, and we've got something from nothing, very improbable. We've got the laws of nature, that's 10 to the 10 to the 60th power, and we've got the odds against life arising by chance, 10 to the 100th million power. Okay, so if you add those all up, 
it's going to be really close to 10 to the 10 to the 60th power, but it's an awfully gigantic number. Let's just face it. And for those who do these things for a living, I think that most people would say, well, that's impossible. That's like with the odds of flying around the world. It's probably by yourself without a plane. That's probably better odds. Well, let's, let's compare those odds to another perspective, and this would be a mind-first perspective. I'm going to call this the holographic or dream motif. Uh, I call it the real dream worldview in my book, The Collapse of Materialism. And let's go through each of these. Okay, what are the odds that something can come from nothing if the mind is at the source of creation? Well, I'm going to say the odds against that are one in one. It's certain. We know that the mind can dream. We know the mind can hallucinate real seeming things. We know that in lucid dreams, and in fact, many dreams, if not all dreams, we always lose ourselves in the dream. Uh, Oliver Sacks in his book, Hallucinations, talks about these amazing realistic dreams where the world appears to be, quote, compellingly three-dimensional. So we know the mind is cap capable of conjuring up a real-seeming world from nothing. It's not that independent matter, but it's, it's a real-seeming world from nothing. So the odds are one in one. Let's move to the laws of nature. Well, if the mind's connected to the world and following Kant here a little bit, then obviously an intelligence can organize the physical world or can organize its dream. That's easy. We want the world to be organized, and the world is organized. We want the world to conform to the laws of nature and mathematical formulas. It does. So the odds against that, I think, are one in one. It's absolutely certain. It could happen. Now, for those who think that that's not certain, all I have to say is, then, what kind of world do you want to live in? Do you want to live in a world of randomness, or do you want to live in, live in a world of order. This is a deep, I think a deep truth, but this to me is the source of order. One in one, we know it's possible. Now let's move to the origin of life, and this is an easy one, because if the mind could imagine, could conjure up a real seeming world from nothing, then clearly it could form a vehicle to experience life. This vehicle, I think, is the human body. And here's a test that a thought experiment anybody could run. Close your eyes and try to imagine the best form, best body that you would want to be in to experience life. And try to imagine something more perfect than the human body. And I'm not talking, I'm talking about the ideal form of the human body. Okay. But try to imagine that. Now one thing that always strikes me, and this is maybe a little different, but every time there's a science, a science fiction movie, an alien movie, it seems as if the aliens are all, always sort of human-like. You know, they got maybe three eyes or two heads or something, but many of them, you know, they have the same number of arms and maybe their haircut's different. It's hard for our imagination to go beyond the human form. And so, where does this lead me? This leads me to say that I think the odds that the mind can create a form or the mind can create life from nothing is one in one. 
So even if you don't agree with my odds on either one of those scales, and uh, maybe you don't, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you would not agree with everything, to me, when you go through this process, and I have been kind to materialism, believe me, I have been very kind, I've not talked about all sorts of things I could have thrown in there, um, such as the inflationary Big Bang, such as the odds against dark matter, matter having the energy it does, the second law of thermodynamics, all sorts of things. It is, to me, crystal clear that it's more probable that we live in a mind-centered world than a matter-centered world. If we live our lives based upon probabilities, then why is it that all of us sort of follow docilely, blindly, materialism? And I, I don't really know what the question, what the answer to that is. Although I've done a lot of thinking about it, I'm going to give you my five, five answers to that question: Why we follow materialism, even though it is so wildly improbable, and even though the mind-first approach is incredibly more probable. Answer one: Science believes it cannot exist unless it assumes matter came first. And if you read. A number of books on this topic, such as by Lisa Rando, Lee Smolin, even Einstein, Ernest Meyer, they talk about how the practice of science must separate itself from the physical specimen. Well, that's great, but if your model does not reflect reality, aren't you eventually going to be wasting your time? So that's the big problem we're having is that science believes it must separate itself from the specimen in order to be a legitimate intellectual endeavor. They have to get over that. Number two, we really want there to be a real independent world. We really do. Everybody does. That's, I think, why we dream. We want there to be a world. But stop for a second and ask yourself, well, maybe we finally got what we wanted, and maybe the challenge is, is to treat it better. We want the world to be more than a dream. We don't want to live in some queasy, sh vibrating, shadowy world, phantom world, scary. We don't want that. But that's something we got to get over. Guess what? We're part of it, so it's real to us. We are dream creatures living in a dream world or spiritual creatures living in a spiritual world. You know, there's that famous saying that we're not physical beings having a spiritual experience were spiritual creatures having a physical experience. That is exactly correct. We are spiritual beings pretending to have a physical experience. Another one of my answers to the question of why we believe in this wildly improbable worldview of modern science, of materialism, is that we've not risen to the level of spiritual maturity to accept the world as spirit. We just haven't grown up. We haven't come to accept the world for what it is. And I think that is extremely true. And it really is a statement of our time, of our times that we're living in. And lastly, it's very similar to the last one. We're not ready to accept the responsibility of being God. You know, Hinduism is based upon this lovely, beautiful principle that the self 
is God, Atman is Brahman, and we sort of rise to this realization that we're one with everything. Sounds real mystical and fanciful, but it's really a, another way of saying that in practical terms, we have to come to the realization that we are one, that we are part of God, and we come rise to this realization that the world joins with us and is part of us and is a projection of us. And unfortunately, materialism has sort of, um, to me, misprogrammed our brains by imagining that it's a foreign object, ignoring all the evidence against it, ignoring parapsychology, near-death experiences, sweeping under the rug, fine-tuning of the Big Bang, the incredible mathematical order of the universe, pretending as if being natural is somehow being scientific. All these things are working, are working against us, are working against our mission, which to me is to rise to the realization that the world is us, that's part of us, and that when we come to our senses, we realize that this is actually a good thing, that we live in a magical world, and the ultimate goal is to join with the world, not to distance ourselves from it. This is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Thank you for listening to my little speechifying, but I thought it might be fun just to talk about some of my thoughts that I've collected over the years, all of which are much more fully developed in my book, The Collapse of Materialism. We'll see you next week. I'll have on the show one of my favorite guests, Amit Goswami, to talk about his new book, Quantum Economics. See you next week. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, hosted by Philip Camilla. To find out more about Philip and his book, The Collapse of Materialism, visit thecollapseofmaterialism.com.